Welcome back to Politically Speaking, Holyrood Magazine's weekly podcast, where you'll get the real rundown of what's going on in Scottish politics. We have the interviews, the gossip, and sometimes the laughs. So please join us. And remember, when anyone tells you they're not interested in politics, you tell them you know a podcast that can help them out with that. And you can also rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. So enjoy. Hello and welcome to Politically Speaking, Hollywood Magazine's weekly look at the world of Scottish politics. I'm Chris Marshall, Deputy Editor of Hollywood, and we're now just a month away from the Scottish Parliament elections. Polling released at the weekend suggests there could be a so-called supermajority for independence after the 6th of May, with Alex Salmon's Alipa party on course to pick up six seats. Salmon has argued that the support for his party under the list system could lead to more independence supporting MSPs at Holyrood and put pressure on the UK government to begin negotiations. But SNP leader Nicola Sturgeon has accused her former mentor of gambling on the result of the election and has said that she is focusing on getting a simple majority for her party. On this edition of the podcast, we'll bring you an interview with James Mitchell, Professor of Public Policy at Edinburgh University, who will discuss some of the issues raised by the emergence of Alpa and how In his words, Scottish politics has turned toxic. But first, I'm joined once again by journalist Andrew Learmans to discuss what's been happening over the past week. So, Andrew, we've uh, we've had a couple of polls now, one suggesting that Alipa uh, will do very badly and another predicting that they could win up to six seats at Holyrood. Um, Are we any further forward knowing what effect um, they're going to have on the election? Yeah, it's been a bit of a, a roller coaster week for the party, Chris. So, so last Friday, as you said, the uh, the poll for the Courier had them on just three percent, and John Curtis said that it was uh, the poll suggested it was all over for Salmond. Um, however, we had the panel-based poll in the, the Sunday Times over the weekend, which put them on six percent after this vote. Uh, and as you said, that would see them turn with with six MSPs. Um, though Curtis again warned that uh, a point or two less, and the tally could be halved or you know wiped out com- completely. Um, they didn't have the smoothest of starts, but uh, their argument about voting SNP 1 and ALBA 2 does seem to be cutting through. Uh, the polls perhaps suggest that. Um, and certainly there's more and more sort of SNP politicians, uh, or former SNP politicians, and sort of prominent supporters are now sort of moving towards uh, ALBA. So we've seen a, a couple of prophets come out for them, and uh, the proclaimers, uh, you know, um, uh, really... Uh, uh, celebrity backers of, of independence uh, saying that they too would be voting SNP 1 on the list and uh, Albert 2. Um, still, as you said, another month to go until election day so uh, it, it does feel as if uh, the message is only going to get louder. Uh, we've got, you know, uh, expecting some some um, uh, fairly uh, keynote speech from, from Alex Salmond on, on, on his party's on the Alpha strategy for, for independence. Uh, unlike the SNP's route map, which has uh, 11 steps, uh, his route map has just one step, which is, you know, you start negotiations with the UK government for independence uh, right from day one of, of, the, of the, the next session of the Scottish Parliament. So, yeah, it's uh, what the impact's going to be, I, I don't know, but it's, it, it's, it's definitely having an impact. Yeah, and I mean, going, going by some of the polling, I mean, the polling in the, the Sunday Times in particular, um, seem to suggest that we could have a, a very uh, different-looking Holyrood um, come the election. You know, sort of harking back to one of the earlier parliaments we had with a lot of smaller parties, and, and potentially um, the, the re-emergence of some colourful, if not controversial, characters. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think um, again, going back to, to John Curtis's analysis of the of the poll, suggested the SNP would win 65 seats, so that put them up two uh, on the last election. Uh, the Tories would take uh, 24, which would have them down seven. Uh, Labour would be on 20, which would be them down four. The Lib Dems would, would stay on five. The Greens would add another two to the tally and, and be up at eight. Uh, Alabama, as we said, would have six, and then George Galloway's All for Unity would have one. Uh, so we could, uh, and likely it would be in the south of Scotland, so we could see George Galloway in the Scottish Parliament uh, after the next election, which would be, you know, quite something, I think. Um, uh, his his party, so All for Unity, are kind of are kind of like the mirror image of Alava, uh, in that they are arguing for voters to do the same thing, which is, you know, vote for the Tories or vote for uh, the Labour or vote for the Unionist Party on the constituency and then vote for them on the list. Uh, they want to create a sort of a unionist supermajority, uh, as it were. Um, the Tories are, are, are quite worried about this. So we've seen reports this morning about strategists, Tory strategists, feeling that they could end up losing five or six seats to, uh, to George Galloway. Uh, you know, absolutely. And, and particularly in the, the south of Scotland, where they picked up a couple of, uh, of list seats at the last, the final list seats at the last election. They also think that Labour could lose seats to the, uh, to, to the Galloway's party as well. So, um, yeah, all, all very interesting. And, and since we last spoke, uh, we, we've had the first of, of the leaders' debates um, on the BBC last week. I mean, do you think there was a, a standout winner there? Yeah, I, I think I think by common consent, uh, Labour's Anis Sarwar was probably the, the, the standout winner. Um, well, we know this again from the panel-based poll over the weekend. Uh, uh, his approval rating leapt from uh, plus three to, to plus twelve, which is a, a fairly uh, substantial jump. I mean, I think I think for, for most of the leaders, it was uh, certainly for for Willie Rennie and for Nicola Sturgeon, it was about doing no harm to their votes. And I think they probably achieved that. I think they sort of went and put solid performances. I, I think for for the Greens, they uh, put Lorna Slater forward. So um, Lorna Slater has been the party's co-leader for a, a couple of years now. She's still fairly, fairly unknown by the public. So in many ways, this was about getting the public to know her. And I, again, I think she, she, she probably did quite well there. Anna Sauer, again, you know, I think even though he's got a higher profile than Lorna Slater, he's only been in the post a, a few weeks. So uh, he kind of had a lot to prove and I think he did, uh, came across very, very well. Um, I think perhaps the, the defining moment of the debate and the defining moment for Sauer was a clash that, that he had with uh, Scottish Conservative leader Douglas Ross towards the end, where they were talking about, you know, working together and about the abuse that people get in politics. Uh, and Douglas Ross started talking about, you know, criticising Sawa and, and Labour for not uh, working with him uh, in the lines to prevent uh, IndyWeb 2. And you, you saw a very frustrated Sawa just sort of almost stop mid-sentence and just tell Ross to, to, to grow up. Yeah, but there's, there seems to be a suggestion that uh, Douglas Ross has had a bit of a, a stuttering start and that uh, he might be joined on the campaign trail by... Uh, by Boris Johnson and, and Rishi Sunak. I mean, do, do, do you think do you think that will help, or, or could that be a hindrance to the Tories? Well, again, looking at this panel-based poll that came out over the weekend, uh, and they did the leaders' approval rating. So, so Douglas Ross's approval rating went from minus sixteen to, to minus twenty-three. So he's now got the lowest approval rating of of any of the the big party leaders. Um, uh, we know uh, this week that Ruth Davidson is now going to be fronting some of the the next stage of of the campaign. You know, that's led to, to Labour and the, the Tories, you know, saying that Ross has been sidelined. Uh, he rejected that. Uh, he had a, a huddle with some journalists yesterday. 
history uh, and he said you know uh, Ruth is a successful Scottish politician and she rightly plays a key role in the campaign and he was very firm you know this is my team my manifesto my policies um, but there's still I think going to be you know questions over 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 you know, over his leadership you know almost uh, 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 and then this question about Boris Johnson coming up it's maybe not as 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 clear as we think it might be so so back in January Boris Johnson himself said that you know wild horses wouldn't keep him away from from campaigning for the Scottish Tories during the election campaign and you know just a, a few weeks ago uh, Ross himself told the BBC that you know the Prime Minister will be up here um, uh, asked about that at the huddle yesterday he said uh, you know asked him Johnson would definitely become. He said, "I don't know," uh, is the honest answer. Um, he says that maybe there might be some sort of virtual uh, event, or uh, he might come up to speak physically to, to one or two people. You know, he, he basically said the pandemic makes things just that little bit un, uncertain. So, yeah, uh, they could come up. I mean, it, it, we're, we're getting to a crunch point of the of the campaign. So next week is when all of the parties will launch their manifestos. But we're expecting that next week. I think some dates are confirmed, some dates are still provisional, but we should expect all of the parties, really the main parties to to, to, to launch their, their, their manifestos next week. Um, and normally there's a, a lot of, you know, um, around that, uh, a lot of sort of you know, big visits and big moments around that. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with the, the Scottish Conservatives, who's really fronting the, the, the manifesto launch and you know, who's who's speaking around it and who's there. And I mean, Scottish politics, uh, there's, there's not been a lot of uh, consensus around of late, uh, Andrew, but there does appear to be growing consensus uh, on, on one issue at least, and, and that's uh, the scrapping of the, the not proven verdict. Absolutely. So, um, Hamza Yousaf, the, the, the Justice Minister, uh, uh, this week has, you know, pretty much said that they will scrap it in the next Parliament. Uh, the, the Tories and the Greens both suggested that in their manifestos last week. So, so I mean, they're not proven verdict. Uh, Sir Walter Scott very famously referred to it as Scotland's uh, uh, bastard verdict. Um, you know, it, it, it's, it's never been entirely clear what what it means. Um, uh, it, it's the same. Uh, uh, it has the same effect as, as a not guilty verdict. You know, you know, it's 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 it, there's some suggestion that you know it, it kind of means that the, 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 the prosecution haven't been able to uh, uh, to prove to a certain or don't have enough evidence to prove that a person is is responsible. So, um, yeah, I think I think there's been a, a um, it's been a lot of a huge campaign to get rid of it for 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 quite some time. Um, certainly, sort of victims groups uh, have always wanted to, um, to 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 scrap it, um, really. Um, so yeah, uh, it's. Uh, it's Interesting times. Well, that's definitely one. That's definitely one to look out for after the election. Uh, thanks very much for that, Andrew. Um, and now for our interview with uh, James Mitchell, who spoke to Hollywood editor Mandy Rhodes. So, James, we've just um, both watched the declaration for Scotland made by Alex Salmond. I mean, it's typical Alex Salmond shoots by in a way, isn't it? That he's led a party for, what, 11 days and on the anniversary of the declaration of our broth, he comes along and makes his declaration for Scotland. Yeah, he does like his declarations. He loves these big kind of historic uh, allusions. And also, as you say, I mean, you know, here's a party that's just been launched, has no MSPs. 
It's trailing in the polls. It's a fringe political party, but he's standing there speaking and behaving as if he is First Minister, uh, talking about how we've got to negotiate with Westminster after these elections. And it was kind of odd. And yet, I suspect many people watching it would think it's not so odd um, because he, whatever else, he does carry authority. He has a personal authority, even though, frankly, it is a bit weird and absurd. I mean, I have to say it was a lot better than the launch 11 days ago. So the IT worked. Um, I think there were absolutely no questions this time, really, about his past behaviour, about what had come up during the criminal trial. It's almost as if, actually, that has moved on. Um, and, and actually, they do have two MPs and they do have a number of councillors now. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's, it's truly... Amazing, because, I mean, you know, a few weeks ago, I wasn't alone in thinking that's the end of his political career. And I I really didn't imagine any successful comeback or even an attempt at a comeback. And yet here we here we are. Now, he hasn't come back. He hasn't succeeded at all. But we are now beginning to talk about him and this party having a realistic prospect of having seats in the next Scottish Parliament, which is truly extraordinary um, when you kind of put the whole recent history, the last few years into perspective. It's just unbelievable in, 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 in one, one respect, but it's happening. So yeah, absolutely. There's there's something very odd. And, and of course, because it's him, it's attracting a lot of media attention, serious journalists engaging with this, asking him serious questions. Um, you know, at one point, I, I, as I heard, so really serious journalists asking about the supermajority and such like and think this is a party that doesn't yet have a single MSP and if it has any after me um it's still going to be probably not very many at all so well, weird yeah I mean I suppose that's uh, we, there are lots of things I'd like to come back to on that but I guess actually if you and I'd been discussing this even you know six months ago or or even less I can remember talking to people about whether anybody can come back into a public position, um, having gone through the court case and the allegations made against him. Obviously, he was cleared of any criminality, but clearly there were um, there was discussion and description of behaviours that most people would not feel were appropriate in the workplace. And I did feel if anybody can come back from these kind of things into a political sphere, it might be Alex Salmond. So what is it? about Alex Salmond? Well, I think first and foremost is there's a thick skin there. Um, I mean, most people um, who had been through what he has been through would simply walk away and not want to have to face the public. Because while you're right, today he didn't field many questions on all of that business, um, it has come up and it will come up again and again over the next few weeks. And indeed, if he is elected as an MSP, it will be brought up in the parliament, it will be brought up by journalists. So, you know, he knows this. He's not a stupid man. He must be incredibly thick-skinned and willing to, to go with this. And he keeps saying, you know, I'm willing to move on, aren't they? And such like. And you think, well, it's all very well for you to say that, but I don't think, I don't think others are willing to move on. And so there's something really odd there. But as you say, I mean, I think the fact that he has been a very prominent, arguably the most prominent figure in Scottish politics over the last two decades at least gives him a standing and a status despite all of the the last few years 
that kind of allows him to have this platform and he attracts attention. That's the other thing. You know, the media, uh, we are talking about him today. We, you know, we, we, we do think he's sufficiently important to, to, to merit this kind of discussion. So, yes, I, but I think ultimately you know, it's him. I mean, he is willing to put himself forward in this way, which, you know, I think most people would have run away from anything like this. I mean, I guess there's an argument for some that he is an open book, that actually there's not much more that you're ever going to find out about Alex Salmond, and that's not true of other candidates. Well, I think that's absolutely true, and I think one thing is for sure he's got really nothing to lose. I mean, he really hasn't anything to lose. I, you know, his reputation is in tatters. Um, you know, he, his political career, we thought, was over. So having another shot at it, I mean, so if he fails, so what? Many people, you know, just say, well, yeah, of course he was going to fail. And if he doesn't fail, then it will be pretty big news. Um, so you're right. I mean, he's got nowhere else to go. And I think that's what makes him politically dangerous, particularly, I think, to Nicholas Sturgeon and the SNP, because he doesn't have anything to lose in, in, in getting involved in this. What is, I think, though, remarkable is that while he has nothing to lose, many of those who have joined this party have a lot to lose because it's going to be very difficult for them if this party collapses, fails completely, then they're going to be in a very difficult position. Um, you know, the, the MPs, the councillors, and many of the others, it's going to be very difficult for them to, to resurrect a political career if this fails. So it's more of a gamble for them in many ways than it is for him. I think it's really fascinating because for us, it's about um, what drives somebody in public life. So we're almost having to try and second guess what on earth is going on in Alex Salmon's mind when most of us may have well, as you say, walked away, gone away to lick our wounds and think about our behaviours. But for the others as well, what drives them? What, what is it? Do they just believe that they will have a career behind Alex Salmon? I think part of it is that there is a real drive and there's a real emotion behind this party and in a lot of it's anger and certainly grievance. These are people who are quite different in many respects, politically and so on and so forth, who've joined this party, but they all feel deeply aggrieved. They feel bitter about the SNP um, for one reason or other, and many reasons. And in fact, it's, it's, it's such diverse reasons that it's difficult to see any coherence other than that sense of grievance. And that seems to be driving them. It's an anger, a grievance there that I think has led so many of them into this party. And, you know, the other thing is always to remember that people who get involved in politics are of a distinct type. Um, you know, the vast majority of the public, you know, would shy away from publicity, shy away from that kind of exposure. But people who are politically active kind of are drawn to the flame, as it were. Um, in this case, I think it's the added impetus of that sense of injustice they have. Now, whether we think that is correct, is irrelevant, that's how they see it. They feel they've been treated badly by the party, by Nicola Sturgeon, that they've been ignored or the policies have been failing the, the, the cause or whatever else. So I think there's, there's a, a, a remarkable range of things going on, but there's a real strong emotion behind this party without any shadow of a doubt. I mean, the thing is, I wouldn't underestimate grievance. <laughs> you know, we always talk about it in a pejorative sense, but at the end of the day, Grievance was what probably fueled the SNP from the very beginning. 
Oh, grievance is is, is always uh, presented as, as a negative thing, but it isn't necessarily negative. And I'm not commenting whether on this occasion it's negative or positive. But, you know, frankly, you know, if you look around the world, there's much to be aggrieved about. There's much to be angry about. Um, whether or not they have justice in that grievance is a separate matter. But, yeah, absolutely, I think there is a real sense of, you know, that things are not going as they should, that they, many of these people feel that they were uh, ignored in the policymaking process in the SNP. Uh, many of them feel that they've been ignored by the leadership, that they've not been consulted, and so on and so forth. So I think, yeah, absolutely, grievance is, is key. Grievance, apart from supporting independence, I think grievance is the one common factor in this party. And as I say, whether or not we see it as negative or positive, justified or otherwise, it's there. But grievance can actually be, strangely, an energising thing. And listening to him today, there may be grievance involved in all of this, but he creates a very positive image. And at the moment, positivity has been lacking. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, as you said a moment ago, grievance often lies behind politics um, and a real challenge for leadership and for parties is to channel that what may start off as a negative grievance into something very constructive and positive. Now, that's a real challenge for him. I think it's not insignificant that he made so much of positive. And since this party's launch um, so recently, the term positive campaigning, we're going to be positive, we're not going to be negative, has been repeated over and over and over again. And I think that is uh, recognition that the party will be seen as negative, as being anti-SNP, anti-Nicola Sturgeon. And so there's a need to do that. But also they have, and I think this is where they're struggling, to articulate a positive agenda and a positive message as to how to get to that promised land as were of independence. And, and I think while, yes, there was a lot of positivity in the language behind it, I, I, I just wonder... I just wonder how they're actually going to achieve it, what they're actually really adding to, to the debate. But you're right, the tenor was um, very consciously, perhaps too self-consciously, frankly, positive. I mean, I think the counter to that has been that the SNP reaction has been incredibly negative, which probably didn't bode very well last week when you had people like Ian Blackford um, dismissing the idea of Kenny McCaskill um, moving over to Alba. Uh, I hope I've pronounced that correctly. We'll come on to that <laughs> shortly. Uh, and th th there were some really damning statements going on. And yet this was a party, the SNP was a party, asking us not very long ago to put our faith in the likes of Kenny McCaskill, people that they're now insulting. Yeah, I, I think the SNP really made um, a mistake there, the leadership of the SNP, in how it reacted to Alba. I mean, I think they, they either ought to have ignored or have played it down, but the reaction, it was very, very much a kind of... An, you know, a party that was saying we're we're not happy with this at all. We're angry at this. How dare these people leave us? And I have to say, also, I'm pretty sure I detect some old scores being settled, some old wounds being reopened. And for those of us who've been around a long time and followed these things over years, indeed decades, in my case, you know, I recall some of the very bitter exchanges between Ian Blackford and Kenny McCaskill twenty plus years ago. Um, and you know, Ian Blackford, when he was national treasurer, was deemed to have not done a great job and there was a vote of no confidence by the national executive and some 
really sharp exchanges. He even threatened to sue Alex Salmond at the time. Um, Kenny McCaskill roasted uh, Ian Blackford uh, in a public session at an SNP meeting. And, and I do wonder if we're seeing some of that submerged uh, bitterness and old wounds re-emerging because some of the reactions um, to, to the launch of the party were quite unexpected and certainly not very wise. So, yeah, I do think it speaks of a party that is a lot less happy internally than it likes to project. There's a lot of misery in there. I mean, it's a remarkable thing that here's a party running so high in the polls, appears to be set for a, a potentially historic victory, and yet if you listen to the activists, and I stress it's the activists, not the ordinary members, God, they are a miserable bunch at the moment. Um, it's, it's not a joyful party. It, it, it's not a positive party internally. No, and actually I'll come back to that bit again because you've, you've just repeated a word that I keep saying at the moment that, that is lacking, which is joy. And, I mean, I have to say, as a political commentator and follower of politics and a bit obsessed, obviously, with it all, the Alex Salmond party has at least brought some interesting element to all of this because it was beginning to feel pretty sour. Yeah, I mean, this party is, I mean, one thing it's certainly done is, is, is it's kind of a, it's interesting, it's different, and it's kind of unexpected. And, and in that respect, it's, 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 it's been fascinating. And the other thing is that if you look at the SNP's reaction to it, it's more disturbed, it would appear, by its reaction to this tiny wee fringe party that's just emerged than it is to the Conservative Party, than it is to the Labour Party or the Liberal Democrats or the Greens. I mean, it's it's Oliver that's really getting under the skin of the SNP's leadership. And, you know, you know that's kind of weird as well. I mean, there's so many facets to this whole development that, that strike me as weird. Weird is the word I keep using with the whole business because I can't, I'm finding it really difficult to kind of compute and make sense of what's happening. But that's because I suspect... I tend to look at politics in terms of ideology, ideas and institutions. And this is about emotions. This is this is all driven by, as we were talking about a moment of grievances, there's old wounds, as we were saying, that have been reopened. I think it's this is a very emotional uh, business, this new party and the reaction to it. And it is all within the broad national movements, within that family, as I've called it elsewhere. This is like any of these family feuds. Family feuds are some of the most bitter feuds, as we you know. It's these battles within a family that, that cause most hurt. And, and, and I think that's what we're seeing. Um, and as outsiders, you know, looking in, it, it, it perplexes us and surprises us. But I think maybe that's how we should see it. It's an fa internal family feud. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, as you say, old timers like us that have kind of followed these things and been sad enough to try and work out all the dynamics. I mean, I remember when um, Salmond was elected back to Westminster and obviously Ian Blackford was there. And, and at that point, you know, just a few years back, we were all kind of picking over that dynamic and wondering how on earth it would work, given the background, as you've described, about the, uh, the acrimony over Ian Blackford when he was the treasurer. Yeah, and, and, and I think one of the things that political parties can do, despite these history, the history of, of division and bitterness, is they can move forward. And they generally can move forward when, when their support is on the up. A successful political party can bring the members back together. What we've got here, again, is a really strange phenomenon, because what we're seeing is a, a party that is in government, 
set to remain in government, extend its lead, but it's a party that's behaving as if it's in opposition, as if it's been through a heavy defeat. After a heavy defeat, what political parties tend to do is they, they start to look inwards and it's recriminations and all sorts of accusations and all the rest of it. Well, that's what we're seeing in the party of government at the moment in Scotland, which makes this really weird. And we do need to find some explanation of what is going on, because this is not normal. This is not normal politics. As I say, you know, um, given the success, electoral success, the appearance of, of likely further success, you would expect greater unity. And we're on the verge of an election. Not just any election, an election that we are told by SNP and ALBA is the most important election in history. Now, I know parties often say that often, you know, every election, but they mean it at the moment. They see this as a crutch election which will allow them to get that referendum to bring Scotland to independence. And yet, there's this deep division, bitterness, and frankly, hatred that's going on. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that, but I would also say that that was happening before ALBA launched 11 days ago. So there are clearly various issues going on. I, I think the one that I first wanted to address, and that hindsight's a wonderful thing, and you know it's great for us looking in and wondering what could have happened. But there was a point where um, the SNP website just literally rewrote uh, Salmond out of their history. Um, you know, at the start of the criminal trial, etc. And I just wonder, were there mistakes made there? Should you, should you be throwing off your past? Should you have given him his place? Um, should Nicola Sturgeon have perhaps reached out at the point that he was uh, cleared in court and at least made some kind of symbol, if you like, of we can get over this, we can all come together? Or do you think that that would just have been impossible? I think that would have been impossible. I just don't think the the current leadership would ever have been able to go down that route. And and I think you know as soon as the kind of this issue, the only accusations were made public, it became very very difficult. And 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 there's no doubt that this became a very difficult issue for Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP. And I think the reaction to that was as you would expect. And and it became very very difficult thereafter. I think to to recover from that position. And, and um, I think it would have been a mistake, frankly, if they, they, they had. Having said that, I think it has been handled very badly throughout. And it almost came across, well, it does come across as if they were out to, de to demolish him. You know, they, they, you know, even before the criminal trial or any of the rest of it, they, they, they were out to completely destroy him. And it was almost as if there was a sentence of guilt amongst the leadership that, this was going on under our nose. Why didn't we know about it? Why wasn't it exposed? So I, I think there's there's more going on like that, I suspect. But I, I, I mean, I'm not at all surprised that they kind of changed the website and, and, and tried to write out their history. It was never going to work because, you know, he has been so central to the SNP's history. And, and in truth, there wouldn't be a Scottish government, an SNP government today, but for him, if, 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 if we're honest. Well, that, I think that probably deals with kind of one element of also anger and grievance and upset, if you like, for some elements within ALBA, because at the end of the day, Alex Salmond was and is a huge political figure still. 
Mm -hmm. and took Scotland to the brink of independence. And it's probably fair to say that Nicola Sturgeon would not be the first minister of Scotland had it not been for Alex Salmond. Well, that's true. I mean, so far as we can make out, I mean, obviously back in 2004, when um, John Swinney stood down as leader, Nicola Sturgeon came forward as a candidate for leader. It was pretty clear at that point that she was unlikely to win. It looked as if Rosanna Cunningham was going to win. And that's why he entered the contest. He he really didn't intend to. And of course, she stood back as the and stood as the deputy. Um, and what was really interesting, and I think this is a very fascinating part of the period from 2004 right the way through till beyond 2014, is that she wasn't just a deputy, but she was the heir apparent. It was very clear that he wanted her to be his successor. And, you know, throughout that period, he made every effort to build her up, to talk her up. And, you know, there was never any doubt that she would be the person that he wanted to see as his successor. So you've got that kind of situation. Now, would she have ever become leader without that? I don't know. We don't know. It's quite possible. But there's no doubt at all that that was the period during which she grew and her whole image was changed and such like. Now, I don't think that's down to Alex Hammond entirely. Far from it. But, you know, there's no doubt at all that he was central to her her political development. But I, I would be wary of, of reaching the conclusion that she couldn't have got there on her own. Um, it might have been a longer journey for her. It wouldn't have been such an easy journey for her to get to the top. But, you know, this, she is a very talented politician. Um, and we shouldn't forget that uh, uh, either. I think that's interesting, though, as well, that if you looked back and think, I wonder where we would have been had Rosanna Cunningham won that leadership, which is what was going to happen. Well, I wonder if we'd have ever had an independence referendum. Well, of course, the reason why he decided to stand for the leader in 2004, which he genuinely, I believe, genuinely didn't want to, was because he thought that Rosanna Cunningham would win and that would set the SNP back, and he thought at that time that there wouldn't be any prospect of an SNP government or independence. And you have to remember, in 2004, right the way through to 2007 and beyond, the prospect of a referendum was still very distant. The SNP in 2004 up to seven thought they might win an election, but they were still thinking, well, that idea of independence is still a long way off. In a way, the, the, the 2011 election came by as much as a shock to them as to the rest of us, because of when they got that overall majority in the parliament, then that referendum really was on the cards for the first time seriously. But up until then, it wasn't. So, I, I you know, who knows what might have happened had... It's always very difficult, those what-if questions, but they're all fascinating. What would have happened had Rosanna Cunningham won in 2004? It would have been a very different situation. Of course, it's possible that she might have taken things forward. It's possible also that she might have been succeeded by Nicola Sturgeon at some point, who could have taken us uh, to all sorts of interesting places. We, we just do not know. But it is fascinating to speculate on these what-if on these what if questions. Yeah, well, it's what keeps the, the salary coming in, I think. <laughs> But I think the the other thing, James, for me is, you, you know, we talk about Nicola Sturgeon almost in the kind of, it, it's not in the abstract. We think, oh, well, we've got this fully formed politician now, but she wasn't back in 2004. But also she's grown up. 
you know, so there's a, a kind of natural evolution of maturing and growing up anyway. But I, I, I guess I just, we're all fascinated by that dynamic of that relationship and and what she learned from him and how difficult it might be for either of them now. But I have to say that during the committee, um, the Scottish Parliament committee investigation gathering, when she described him as her bestie, I completely discounted that. You discounted the idea that he was... The idea that, A, she would have a bestie, but he ah. would be her bestie. I just don't think that that is their relationship or was their relationship. No, I, I, I mean, it became very interesting because listening to the two of them um, and when he said that he had only ever been to uh, the Sturgeon Murrell home, I think, three or four times yeah. was interesting. And I think many of us thought there was a much closer personal link there. But leave aside the absence of a kind of close personal relationship, a friendship, a bestie, or whatever, there clearly was a very, very close professional relationship. And unless I've got it completely wrong, my sense was throughout that period, they were incredibly close. They worked together as a team to a remarkable extent. This was not the kind of team that we've seen in other parties where two people maybe at the top manage to get along together, but ultimately we know that they don't really get on at all, the kind of Blair Brown scenario. They did appear genuinely, I think, to professionally, and I stress professionally rather than personally, work together incredibly well. They were a, they were a good team. I mean, people talked about them as being the, the dream team, and I, and I have to say I, that was the impression that was created. And then, of course, you know, when things start to go wrong in a very close relationship, whether it's personal or professional, then it becomes very bitter. And I think the bitterness and the anger that we've heard from her is probably a function of that close professional relationship that existed. So I, I'm, I'm maybe being naive, but I think it was probably genuine, that genuine close. Now, that doesn't mean to say that there wasn't great ambition there, that she wasn't desperate to be First Minister and she was waiting for her turn and maybe even getting a wee bit impatient. But I think there was a genuine professional closeness. No, I think that's true. But, but I think also they complemented each other. So Salmond really is a very natural politician, isn't he? Whereas I feel Nicholas had to learn to be that outward-facing person. And, and there's a huge generation of the electorate that won't <clears throat> remember anything other than that. Yeah, I, I tend to think that both of them, and I think this is generally true of many senior politicians I've encountered over my career, they're actually underneath the surface they're quite shy and and they're awkward. And, and, and you know, politics does attract a strange set of people often and people who are very ambitious who want to get to the top. And they actually have to have to learn to be able to be sociable. They have to almost learn to be empathetic. And 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 I think that in a way, it may sound cynical. I'm, I'm not suggesting that there, there's not something sincere there. And I have to say that actually because they have to learn it and they have to really force themselves into these situations, I think this is true of both of them, that actually makes me, me more impressed by senior politicians who do that because it's against their natural tendency. I mean, what we know about Nicola Sturgeon and so what we've heard and read, what you've written about her, uh, you know, as a young girls and young women was this was not someone who was an extrovert at all and and you know 
you know, when you think about what she now has to do and, you know, she gets out there and has the glad hand and so on and so forth, you know, can you learn that really? Is it in yourself? I, I, I just think that, that that is quite a remarkable achievement. And you see it in all parties and you see it amongst all political leaders. I don't think it's just true these two. It's, I mean, you do, I'm sure, get the odd politician who's genuinely gregarious, outgoing, extrovert. But I, I think a lot of them are actually, it's forced. And forced in, the, in, the, in a positive sense, I want to stress. Yeah, it's really interesting, James, because I, I was speaking to Ken McIntosh, the presiding officer, um, who obviously is standing down now, having been in the parliament since 99. And he said exactly the same thing to me about you shouldn't see it as a negative. He said, actually, one of the things that he looks back on and thinks, I wish someone had taught you how to be a politician. That mm. it's a craft you should learn. It's a craft. And I think one of the things that occurs is that politicians learn from other politicians and you know they can pick up books by people like me and read the kind of work you write well you'll get more from your writing than from mine but they'll not learn from me anything about being a politician in the sense that we're talking about it because you know that kind of psychology if you like of it is, is is just not discussed very much in the literature and it's inevitable, I think, that, you know, young budding politicians will look around and they'll learn from other politicians, the ones they see as successful, and they'll try and emulate them. And you often see that. You, you, you'll you see kind of young politicians almost, kind of, almost becomes a parody of a senior politician. You know, even the, the speaking style, the hands will be used in a particular way. Um, so I think that's what happens is they learn from others. And there's no doubt at all that while... Nicola Sturgeon is very different in many respects from Alex and a lot that she does has been learned from him and many in the SNP and people in other political parties have adopted his style and approach. So that that I think is is that's where they get their training as where they, they, they observe. And of course in the past, it, you know, you know, people in the House of Commons, a lot of that learning took place in the Oxford Union or in, up in here it would have been the Glasgow University Debating Society and such like. And hence you get that frankly, dreadful kind of debating style and style of politics, which, frankly, I am I, I, not fond of at all, which is quite different from that more raw kind of politics, the kind of community activist route. And, and I have to say, it's one of my favourite themes, is that I think we, we, we could do with more of that rawness and that more community activism. We've got too much of that attempt to professionalise our politics, too much trying to copy, you know, a previous leader and so on and so forth. Well, just on that, uh, copy your leader, if you like, and, and obviously um, Sturgeon, Nicola Sturgeon, was Alex Salmon's succession plan. <laughs> yep. she, she doesn't have a Sturgeon. She doesn't have a sturgeon either in the sense of someone in the cabinet who can say to her, hold on, you're maybe going off in the wrong direction. Are you sure about this? Um, that's one of her biggest weaknesses. But neither does she have a sturgeon in the sense of a successor who's obviously emerging. In fact, you know, what's really interesting is that what you often find with leaders is that they try to manage it so that there isn't one single successor because that one single successor might push them aside but to have a you know a number on the go and allow them to compete with one another so there's nothing like that which is is very very striking but i think there's a two sides to it that first part i mentioned that there's there's nobody in the senior reaches of the snp who's who seems to be able to say to her, 
hold on, do you think you're doing the right thing here? It's 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 a very much a kind of concentrated leader. Now, that process started under Alex Salmond, but he always had her there. And indeed, he had others there who would question and challenge him. She kind of, you know, the stronger a leader is, the more they're in power, the more they need those alternative voices whispering in their ear occasionally, you're, you're not doing this right. And you know, I'm afraid she's, she just doesn't have them. I mean, I mean, due respect to the people I'm not going to mention here, and I'm going to name names, they're not an impressive bunch around her. I think that's a generally a generally accepted view, um, and 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 you do need you need stronger people who are willing to stand up to you. Well, James, she may well have Alex Salmond back in the Parliament standing up to her. <laughs> uh, how do you think that could work? How do you think she'd cope? I don't think he'll have that role for sure. <laughs> um, I God, it's going to be quite extraordinary. Imagine the first first minister's question when he gets up to ask a question or. I mean, it's just, I think there's going to be a moment of real awkwardness, at least initially. Um, it'd be very interesting to see how the SNP members, or at least some of them, behave towards him. Um, will they walk out? I mean, it's conceivable that if he's elected and the first time he stands up to speak, there might be a walkout. I don't know. Um, I mean, there will be some who want to engage with him and speak to him for sure. Um, will they do so publicly? Will they be um, in trouble for doing so? The, the dynamics of this are so difficult to predict. It's certainly, a, I don't know how it's going to work out, but it's going to be fascinating if he makes it into that parliament. And and one assumes he'll want to um, make much of his area, the northeast of Scotland, because if he's elected, it will be up there, and he'll no doubt want to make the case for that area. And that must involve some challenges to the Scottish government, and, and that will be difficult and awkward. I mean, it could be difficult and awkward at the best of times, but particularly given the past history of the last few years. What do you think the worst case scenario could be, A, for, for Alex Salmond, but also for Nicola Sturgeon? Well, it says the worst case scenario for him would be that he doesn't get elected, though, you know, <laughs> what, how much worse is it than, than the situation was in a couple of weeks ago? I'm not sure. That's why I, I think, you know, the, he's got so little to lose from all of this. Um, I guess the worst case scenario would be utter humiliation if, frankly, his party completely bombs and, you know, comes nowhere near to winning any seats. And it's very difficult to see how anyone could come back from that. Um, so that would be that would be really difficult. The worst case scenario for her would be that she finds herself, well, well, there's a number of uh, potential scenarios that would be quite awkward for her. First would be that the SAB fails to win an overall majority. If she has to rely on Alper for that majority, that creates huge problems for her. I think that's almost as problematic as not having an overall majority for independence. So I think that also, I think, contributes to that, that sense of, you know, anger, annoyance, irritation, whatever you want to call it, inside the SNP at this upstart party. Um, you know, the last thing she wants is to find herself having to rely on Alex. I imagine if at the end of the day she has to go to him and say, we need your votes um, and, and you know, almost has to invite him back in to not the party, but to this, the cause. That would be really, really difficult for her. Um, I'm not saying it will happen, um, I, uh, but I think that would be awkward. 
I mean, obviously the polls have not always been right in the last few years, but a week ago we were seeing Alba already being um, written off and they then doubled their their appeal, if you like, in the polls. I mean, could you imagine a situation where, in fact, he does win um, a number of list seats and the SNP does not perform as well as it did in 2016? Do you think that makes her position then untenable? It certainly makes it very difficult. I mean, I, 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 I think in such a situation, you know, many more people in the SNP will start asking questions and being very angry. And I think her position would become at least very difficult, if not untenable. On the polls, I must say, I think the reaction to that first poll, which had up on 3%, I mean, some of the reaction was beyond stupid. Um, 3% might easily have given them a seat. I'm not saying it would. But the reaction of some people who should have known better, frankly, um, was odd because it didn't take account of the fact that the geographical spread will not be even, didn't take account of the fact that there would be a margin of error, it didn't take account of the fact there might be people who are willing to vote for it but not say they would to a pollster. It's a whole series of factors. And also, crucially, it was one poll taken within days of its launch. I think we need to be a bit more careful and this has been a gripe of mine for a long time in how we react to opinion polls. And we spend, personally, I think we spend far too much time on the polls and far too little on the politics. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, 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 I just think we've got to be very careful. We, this is a new phenomenon, an unusual phenomenon, and it's very difficult to know where it's going. I mean, there was a lot of speculation that, that as soon as he launched, I mean, I can remember tweeting something saying that I thought that for the list, this might be more of a threat for the Greens. And there was an immediate reaction from the Greens saying, oh, you know, we don't attract the same kind of people as Alex Salmond might attract. I thought that was a really superficial reaction. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it's it, it, it's. Difficult to know. It's very difficult to know. I mean, and, and, and you know, the thing about the green support is it has fluctuated over the years. Remember, you know, in, in 2003, they managed to win seven seats. I mean, they had had one in the first parliament and then it collapsed down to two seats. Actually, incidentally, in 2007 election, the Greens won two seats with 4% of the vote. Again, so people should have been aware of that before they offered comments on that poll. So, but my key point is there's a section of the electorate which will be green and will vote green, come what may, without any shadow of a doubt. But there's also a section that might be inclined to vote green or another. And it's that group that I think I took it from your tweet that you were referring to, not the kind of hard green vote. And I suspect it's the hard green vote that the Greens were referring to. Um, and of course, they'd be quite outraged at the thought that, that anyone could support Alex Salmond if they've supported the Greens. So, yeah, I think it's, it's you know, we've got to be careful here. The electorate is more sophisticated, more complex. And what may appear to us as analysts as being an odd voting behaviour on the part of, of, of individual voters is not how the, the voter her, herself might see it. You know, people might be inclined to switch around. We know that people are more willing to switch around. We also know that people don't have the same strong affinity for a party, link for a party, identification with a political party that they used to have in the past. So it's much looser. Um, and and that, that, that also, of course, is one of the reasons why you can see other parties emerging um, over time. 
It's interesting. I mean, you, you said uh, herself in terms of a voter, and I was going to come to that, that I think there's a sort of, if you like, an elephant in the room. When people are talking about um, or discounting Alba's support, they're tending to talk about angry, white, middle-aged or elderly men. But actually, there's a lot of women very upset with the SNP because we know that there was the big division around GRA reform, which also might have an effect on the Green list vote. Yeah, I mean, it was very notable today at that launch at the start of it that that a number of ALPA candidates were paraded before us and they were all women. And many of them were making the point that they were there as women's candidates and that this was an issue for them. And there is absolutely no doubt that some of the people who've joined this party have done so because of a grievance against the SNP's policy, as you see, on the in the GRA. And, you know, whatever your view on that is, um, you know, that you know, there's a sense that the SNP hasn't handled it very cleverly. It's, it's a very sensitive issue. It's a very difficult issue. It's, it's causing difficulties for parties and governments across the world. But, you know, there's no doubt there are some people there. And I certainly can see individuals who've joined this party with a very long history of um, activism on, on, on women's issues. Uh, Margaret Lynch, who I, I remember from her days in the Labour Party back in the 1980s, who's been deeply involved, and nobody could ever say that she was anything other than a feminist, and, and she's a candidate in this election. So, so we've got to be very careful, I think, in how we, we see it. Having said that, I, I would think, and again, I'm likely to be proved wrong on this as so much else, that, 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 that Alpa will probably appeal more to, to, to men than to women. Um, but, um, you know, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. At the moment, it's very difficult to say in the polls. We don't have the data that's sufficient to say anything um, very definitive on that. It, there's a big dichotomy, though, isn't there? Because if you look at the people that are impatient for independence, they may well be younger. And yet here comes Alex Sand along with this party, which appears to embody that impatience for independence. Yeah. Uh, and we're talking about middle-aged or elderly old men. Yeah, I mean, it's very difficult to get a sense of, of the the kind of... We've, we've no sense of the membership of this, this party at all. We keep being told, they keep telling us that they've got more members than the Liberal Democrats. But, uh, you know, they, they, we, they haven't, to my knowledge, released the actual figures. And they certainly haven't. Well, they haven't been able to, frankly, give us a sense of who these members are, um, either in terms of the age profile, the gender profile, the class profile, the geography of, of the membership. And that, obviously, that's something that fascinates me. I've done a lot of work on party membership uh, over the years, and I would be very interested in seeing that. Um, and when you look at the kind of prominent members, of course, there are not going to be many younger people there. Um, you know, there never are that many younger people uh, for good or ill, and I guess for ill, uh, who, who, who come forward at, at, at election time. So it's difficult to, to know. But you're right that, that part of the message was clearly a sense that things aren't moving as fast as they should. Um, and, and is that, you know, one could imagine that that, that might appeal to young people. It's fascinating. You know? I always think it's very interesting that, you know, older people have got less time to live to see that goal, if that's what their goal is, you know, should be more impatient. The young people, they've got a long time to to, to worry about it. But uh, I, 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 yeah, I think you, you, you have a point there. And on a, a kind of personal level about their relationship, there are lots of people that might not 
have the, if you like, the background that you and I have or the memories that we have. But do you seriously think that he has entered the fray to topple her or to to do this to upset her? Oh, God, no. I think it's, it's you know... I think it's about his ego, for sure. Um, but I, I, I don't think it's about toppling her. I think he is someone who just would, you know, he was never keen on leaving the stage, as it were. I think it's much more about him being wanting to be centre stage. And um, I, I, don't, I don't think it's about trying to topple her as such. I, 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 you know, I think it's much more, it's more about him himself than, than, than anything else. It's quite an extraordinary thing, isn't it, to have... Well, I mean, I would say that I haven't ever met a politician without um, quite a big ego. (laughs) I mean, how could you put yourself on the stage and expect the electorate to vote for you, and it's about you, without having an ego? Yeah, and 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 confidence, and 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 you know, it's it's easy, I think, to to criticise it, and I'm I'm not saying you are, but I mean, I think we need people to do that. We need people to come forward, and I guess for me, one of the concerns I have is that the nature of our politics now, and increasingly in my view, makes it more and more difficult for people to come forward. And I think we're losing a huge number of people who are really talented, who we should be encouraging into politics. And I have to say, the SNP's troubles of late have not been good in terms of bringing people forward into politics. Politics has, has come through in Scotland, uh, you know, it's, it's in a, a very unhealthy state at the moment, in my personal view. And I don't think what we've seen has projected a positive image um, for, 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 for Scotland or, or, or indeed for politics. And that bothers me, that worries me. I'm, and I think, you know, the kind of highly adversarial, hyper-partisan angry, nasty kind of stuff that's been going on. And this goes beyond the SNP's internal troubles. Is 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 frankly troubling. It's not good. It's it's it, it ought to worry all of us. And and I do often ask myself how many people out there who could be making a big difference are reluctant to come forward because of what they see. We could do with that attend pending paying attention to that, I think. On that basis, James, I mean, if you, you, you've been close to both Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond, if you had the opportunity now to sit down with them over a <laughs> nice glass of wine, what, what would you say, what, what's the main thing you'd want to ask either of them? Oh, God, um, I, I'm not sure. I, 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 you know, I guess they both, I can I, can I, instead of asking them a question, can I be so arrogant as to give them some advice? <laughs> um, I would say... You can do whatever you like. You're paying for the drink. <laughs> I, I would say, like, take a deep breath and think, what are you doing? In one case, are you sure you're doing the right thing? Why don't you just relax, head into retirement, go away. To the other, I would say relax. Relax is the key here. And, you know, listen more. And, you know, just our politics need to change. You're in a bubble. And frankly, you're putting people off. And I have to say to each of them, they're not frankly together, for me at least, and I know this is not going to go down well at all with people in the SNP, but they're not making a very positive case for independence in terms of how they've been behaving. And in particular, obviously, Simon. Simon. 
as someone much greater than I said, a week is a very long time in politics. And believe me, I know Scottish politics is never boring. So don't leave it long. Make sure you come back and join us on Politically Speaking. And remember that you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and do tell your friends because everybody has an interest in politics. 